Almighty God, with all of our hearts, we bow before you now and open your word. Our church, indeed, we believe the true church of God around the world, is built upon the rock of your authoritative and inspired word. The truths that were just sung to us so beautifully are true, we believe, because they come from your word. And I pray for your help now as we open your word. I pray that you would strengthen us by it. I pray that you would make it plain and make us docile and submissive to it. Draw near now and save those who are without Christ and strengthen those who need to persevere against great odds and maintain faith against much discouragement. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll read verses 7 through 19. We'll take this text today as a continuation of last Sunday, and then we will take up the same text next week, only focus on a different aspect in it. Hebrews chapter 3, let me read before you verses 7 to 19 as you follow along. There are Bibles underneath the pew there in front of you if you would like to use one of those to follow. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and let me just pause and take note that this writer ascribes the Psalms to the Holy Spirit. Don't miss things like that. He is quoting Psalm 95, and he says, The Holy Spirit says. This is a high thing he's saying. And we as a church should say it of the Bible. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that's the end of the quote from the psalm. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so you see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, last week, what we saw in verses 1 through 6 was that Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. And we saw that in two ways. I want to rehearse for just a minute what we saw and then lead into this text, which begins with a therefore. We saw in verse 3 that Jesus is greater than Moses in the same way that the builder of a house is greater than the house. Which means that Jesus is to a house like the builder and Moses is to a house like the house and therefore Jesus built Moses. He made Moses. And verse 4 draws out the natural implication, namely that Jesus is God. The builder of all things is God. And Jesus built the house, which is Moses and the people of Israel. So superiority number one, Jesus made the Olympians, Jesus made Moses, Jesus made you, and therefore Jesus is superior to every being in the universe because he made everybody. He is God. This is a repetition of what we saw in chapter 1, verse 8, where the writer says, But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Son of God is God. Secondly, in verses 5 and 6, we saw that he is superior to Moses the same way that a son over a house is superior to a servant in the house. The son is the heir of the house, the protector of the house, the supplier of the house out of his wealth, and the servant simply draws upon the wealth of the house, and then ministers in the house. And that is the same thing we saw in chapter 1 of Hebrews. In fact, I didn't notice this until recently, what we have here in verses 3 and 4, and then verses 5 and 6, the superiority as creator and the superior superiority as heir over house is exactly what was held up about Jesus in chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. It's not surprising, having said that in verse 2 of chapter 1, he's the heir of all things, he's the creator of all things, that he would come now in chapter 3 and say them again as he's drawing out the superiority of Jesus over Moses as Moses' maker and the heir of the house. He made the house and he's the heir of the house. He's the creator and he's the son. And then finally, last week, we came to verse six at the end. And very briefly, we noticed that the author draws us into the picture with this final phrase. Whose house we are. We Christians, his readers and himself, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. Now, that's a real serious if, isn't it? We are his household, God's people, God's house, God's inheritance, saved If 
It's a very serious if. Ifs are very serious business when you're talking about being God's house or not being God's house. Being that which God the Son will inherit or that which he will not inherit. You are God's house and will be inherited as God's possession if. It's really serious. And the rest of this chapter deals with that if. In fact, I hope we make plain over the coming weeks and months that the whole book of Hebrews is written to unpack and explain and help you with this if in verse 6. This is a book about perseverance. It's a book about endurance. It's a book about keeping on, keeping on, and stick to in the Christian life, which is what that big if is all about. We are his house if we hold fast to our confidence in God and our boast of hope in our confession. Now, this is really important at the end of the 20th century because we are confronted everywhere I turn today. It seems like in American evangelicalism, I am confronted with what I would call a careless use of the concept of unconditionality. You hear it in sermons, you read it in books, you hear it in songs on the radio, you hear it in commentaries, the word unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, with no thought of any biblical distinction that some things are unconditional and other things are not unconditional. Just if you say the word, oh, bless it, it must be of God, it's true, it's so high. Well, it isn't. There is unconditional electing love, something that the people that talk about unconditional love rarely even think about and are scared to talk about. But when it comes to justifying love, that's not unconditional. Sanctifying love is not unconditional. Glorifying love is not unconditional. We must become a biblically discerning people. Read verse 6. We are God's house. If, that's a condition, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope. So let's get into this big if and let's let the rest of the chapter explain why it's so important and how to understand it. Now, the first thing to notice, we're going to stay with verse 6 for a moment before we unpack 7 to 19. We'll be back next week with this. Notice first that the if, if we hold fast our confidence and our hope, is a condition for being something now. You see this? We are God's house if we hold fast our confidence and hope. 
like if you pronounce Ronald Reagan's wife's name Nancy, you are a southerner. You don't become a southerner by pronouncing Nancy Reagan that way. That's evidence of something. It doesn't make you something. It's evidence of something. So when he says you are the house of God, if you hold fast, he's not telling you how to stop being a non-house and get into being a house. He's saying you are a house. You are God's house if something is true about you. If something is true about you, namely, do you hold fast confidence in God? Do you hold fast hope? So you should ask, how can I know this morning that I am part of God's house? The answer is not, did you pray a prayer 30 years ago? Did you walk forward at Billy Graham? Walking forward at Billy Graham proves nothing. The question is, where is your confidence now? Where is your hope now? If you have no confidence in God, if you are not cleaving and holding fast to your hope now, you have no warrant for saying, but I'm part of the house. If we hold fast our confidence, we are his house. It defines the house. It defines the members of the house. Now, let's support this with a few texts right here in the context. Go back up to verse 1. He calls his readers partakers of a heavenly calling. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. He looks them in the eye, as it were, and he says, you are, holy brethren, you are partakers of a heavenly calling. So when verse 6 says, if you hold fast your confidence, he means you are partakers of the call. You are the household of God now, and the evidence of that is that you hold fast to confidence in God and to hope in him. Let's look in another verse. This one's even more important. Drop down to verse 14 to confirm the way the author is thinking in verse 6. Verse 14 says, We have become partakers of Christ if, big if, if, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. It's almost identical to verse 6, isn't it? We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. So being partakers of Christ, verse 14, virtually the same as being partakers of a heavenly calling, verse 1, Virtually the same as being God's house, verse 6. And the condition is, for all three of them, are we now holding fast to our confession, our confidence, and our hope? Now, notice the wording of verse 14 very carefully. 
This is extremely important, which is why literal translations are important. <clears throat> it says, we have become. This is the NASB now. I hope yours is close because it's exactly literal. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold our assurance to the end. Now notice, the condition, if, is future. If we go on holding fast to our confession to the end. The effect of the condition relates to the past. We have become partakers of Christ. So the point here is not hold fast to your assurance in order to become in the future a partaker of Christ, which you are not now. That'd be a wrong interpretation. It doesn't say hold fast to this so that someday, by dint of your effort, you will become a partaker of Christ. That's not what it says. It says hold fast to your assurance and by that you will show and prove and evidence and demonstrate that you have become a partaker of Christ. Now, this is really important. Listen carefully. This means, this is utterly crucial in the book of Hebrews. This means that this writer does not believe that you can truly partake of Christ, share in his heavenly calling and be a part of his house and lose your salvation. He doesn't believe you can. Do you see that? I probably skipped a beat for you right there. Ask yourself this question. Pose it to yourself right now. If verse 14 says, we have become partakers of Christ in the past. If verse 14 says, we have become partakers of Christ in the past. If we in the future hold fast to our assurance, then what conclusion should we draw if we do not hold our assurance firm to the end? And the answer to that question is not this. This would be a wrong answer. It would be wrong to say, if we do not hold fast our assurance, then even though I was once a partaker, I am no longer. That's exactly the opposite of what the text says. The text says, if you hold fast your assurance, then you have become a partaker. Now switch it around. If you do not hold fast your assurance, then what? You have not become a partaker. You have not become a partaker. It meant nothing at Billy Graham. It meant nothing at your mother's knee. It meant nothing on the radio. It meant nothing in the prayer gathering. If you, for a season, acted out of faith, you thought, and came to church and read your Bible, did the right things, kept your nose clean, called yourself a Christian, and then you throw it away and you don't hope in him anymore and you give it up. The conclusion is not that you can jump in and out of salvation. This text says exactly the opposite. We have become participants in Christ if we hold fast 
And if we do not hold fast but make apostasy and throw away the faith, we have not become participants in Christ. Everything in chapter 3 now is meant to unpack this and support it, explain it, and help us with it. But before I unpack it, I want you to see this right through the book of Hebrews. I want you to get on board with me in this book. I want the the thinking of the book of Hebrews to become part of the warp and woof of your thinking. What the Bible calls us to as a church is being transformed in our thinking. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? And the way you become transformed in your thinking so that not television and not radio and not newspapers and not magazines and not the ethos and the spirit of our age shape our thinking, but God shapes our thinking. The way to do that is to so read the Bible that the thinking of the Bible becomes our thinking. And you do it book by book. And Hebrews is a great paradigm shattering book. It's a glorious book. And I want the thinking of the book of Hebrews to become our thinking at Bethlehem, as well as Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians and all the way to the end. So to get on beam with what is the theme of this book, let me just walk you through other passages like the ones verse six and verse 14 that we're looking at here. If you want to flip to them real fast to lay your eyes on them or if you want to just dot them down, either way is OK with me. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. We'll look about six of these. I'm not going to comment. I'm just going to read them so that you can get the flavor of what's here. Chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's his big concern for Bethlehem and for every church. Are we drifting away from or holding fast to? Chapter 3, verse 6. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and boast of hope firm to the end. Chapter 3, verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. Chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Do you get the picture of the Christian life in this book? The Christian life is not sluggish coasting. There is a brand of Christianity abroad in this country that says once you've made a decision, you go to heaven no matter what you do. And it's demonic. Decisions are real to the degree that they beget perseverance. To the degree that they don't, they're false. It's living the Christian life that is all important, which is why I said last Sunday as I returned from vacation standing at the table, if this hour is not serious, it's nothing. The Christian life is hell or heaven. And there's a theology abroad that says, oh, no, 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 no. The point of decision is hell and heaven. I heard of a man one time who preached in a seminary that I went to before I came who said, my view of eternal security is that if when I get done preaching here, I go down to the red light district in Pasadena and sleep with a prostitute tonight 
And the Lord returns, I go up and she goes down. And though very few people would risk articulating it like that, that's the theology of many people. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter if I'm earnest. Doesn't matter if I pursue. Doesn't matter if I do Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. That you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and the word is endurance, inherit the promises. How many coasters there are. Chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Chapter 10, verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. How many Christians throw it away? Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which clings so closely or entangles us and let us run with endurance, run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then the last chapter, chapter 13 in verses 20 and 21, there's this beautiful, delightful benediction that shows where this writer gets his assurance. If you're asking right now, Well, if you have to persevere to the end by holding fast to your confidence, where's my security? And the answer is, it isn't in you. And it isn't in some past act. It's in God. It's in the promises of God. So here's what he says. He says, and now may the God of hope, who brought again from the dead our great, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, Now, may he what? May he equip you with everything good, working his will, and work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Where are you going to get the resolve and the courage and the will and the power and the transformation to do the will of God and so persevere to the end? Answer, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory forever and ever. We are utterly dependent. John Piper's being a Christian tomorrow morning hangs on the Holy Spirit's persevering grace. Without the promises of God, I have no assurance. He who began a good work in me will complete it under the day of Christ Jesus. I won't complete it. My decision doesn't complete it. Signing a card didn't complete it. Christ completes it or I'm done for. Now let's go to these verses. And just briefly, we won't take much time with verses 7 to 19. But what you need to see mainly in verses 7 to 19, which is given as a therefore. Since there's this big if in verse 6, there's a therefore in verse 7. And the therefore is a warning. If you ask, how does the Holy Spirit beget courage? How does he beget perseverance and endurance? The answer is by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And faith is what we need to persevere in. And therefore, we need to be in the word day by day. I don't read the Bible because it's a duty. I don't read the Bible because pastors are supposed to read the Bible. I read the Bible out of desperation. 
I drift away from God without the Bible. Don't you? If I don't read the Bible, prayer ceases to be important. Evangelism ceases to be important. Worship ceases to be important. Television becomes more important. Riding my bike becomes more important. Playing with the computer becomes more important. Getting money becomes more important. Reading the Bible is no mere duty. It's desperation. You live by the Bible. Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And therefore, what we have in verses 7 to 19 is word which is given to provide the strength for the if of verse 6. If you wonder, oh, there's an if, oh my, I've lost security. No, you have the word of God. You've got the word of God Almighty. He who promised is faithful. And not only does he give promises, he gives warnings. And they are so precious. Don't begrudge the warnings of Scripture saying, oh, I don't want bad news. I don't want bad news. I want just sweet good news. The warnings of Scripture are so precious. And verses 17 to 19 are one big warning. And the warning is simply this. Look at Israel, it says. He quotes Psalm 95, the story of Israel. And he says, now take Israel as a warning. What happened to Israel when they came out of the Exodus, out of Egypt, by the Exodus, went into the wilderness and didn't make it to heaven? That's the image, the picture. They didn't make it to the promised land. It's a picture of Christians who pass through baptism, make their little decision, make their little commitments, and now they're in the wilderness of this world. Will they get to heaven? That's the analogy here. Let's read it, starting at verse uh, 8. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, or perhaps the translation might be, do not harden your hearts as in the embitterment or the anger of the people. As in the day of trial in the wilderness where their fathers, your fathers, tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. And therefore I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath. They will not enter my rest. They had seen Almighty God divide the Red Sea for them. They had seen God defeat their enemies. They had tasted the power of God. And these people right here, that he's writing to had experienced these same things and they had become hard and unbelieving. They murmured in the wilderness. And the result, God didn't say, well, they had enough faith to walk through the Red Sea and they had enough faith to leave Egypt and so I'll give them the promised land anyway. He said, I swear they will not enter. My rest. Because they harden themselves against the Lord. <clears throat> How many Christians presume upon the grace of God the way these Israelites presumed upon Exodus mercies? If we harden our hearts, if we treat God with contempt, we will not enter his rest. 
which is a picture of heaven. Do not treat the grace of God with contempt, presuming the escape from Egypt is enough. Without being satisfied with God, without guidance, without trusting him for provision and leadership in the wilderness of this world. Oh, how many Christians want the mercy of forgiveness. They hear the gospel, they say, hmm, I can have my sins forgiven and I have God not angry with me and go to heaven instead of hell. That sounds good. I think I'll like that and have no love for God. And the test comes a week later with some suffering, a month later, ten years later, and they have drifted, and God isn't their portion. They don't hope in God. They don't have confidence in God. They only want escape from hell. And they finally begin to drift away and are lost. Now, you know what the devil is doing right now in some of your hearts? You're taking this seriously and you're saying, wow, I got to clean up my act. I got to do some things here now. Read the Bible, pray more, church on time and not do this and not do that. What's coming to your mind right now is a, is behaviors that you got to fix. Now I want to cut that off here for a minute. Just cut it right off at the knees because behaviors are down the way. This text is about the heart. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. Before you move a muscle here, before you lift a hand, walk an aisle, go home and do something, it's a heart issue right now. And some of you could die before you get out of your pew. And you could be okay. Because it's always a heart issue. Or, put it another way, it's a belief issue. The issue with the Israelites is that they stopped trusting the goodness of God. Look at verse 19. And so we see, this is his conclusion after listing off all the, the murmuring and the rebellion and the sinning. He draws this conclusion, and so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. That's the issue. It wasn't the behavior fundamentally. It wasn't that they got angry at God and murmured against him and the moving of their mouth was the sin. It's what's going on in here that makes all the difference in the world. Yes, they were embittered <coughs> and they tested him, verse 8. Yes, they sin. Verse 17 says so here. But the problem is they didn't, didn't believe in the goodness of God. They didn't trust him. The Red Sea split. They said, wow, we got escape from hell. Let's go over. They go over, closes up. Wow. And then within a few days, they're thirsty. Where are you? Where are you? That's unbelief. And it proves that what was happening in the Exodus was not saving faith. And he cut them off and swore they would never enter his rest. This book, Hebrews, is written to prevent that from happening to you.
You get saved, you think, because you want the benefits, and then there's no water in the wilderness. And there's a growing craving for the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. Do you remember that passage in Numbers? Does it sound familiar to anything in your own experience? They said in the wilderness, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing to look at except this manna. When that happens to you, you are in a terrifying condition. And many Christians are in a condition of starting to think about what it would be like to just get out of this straitjacket of Christian discipleship and be back with my friends and have all the pleasures of this world and the Bible and prayer and worship and Christian fellowship and living for the glory of God and being passionate about a supremacy for God in all things. Manna. It's just manna. And I'm so tired of it. And when that happens, you need Hebrews very badly. You need it very badly. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, it says in chapter 12. So let me close with an exhortation. If that's your situation this morning, that is, if you are a professing believer today, and most of you are professing believers, I am, and you have found in recent months, perhaps, or years, that this is really not what you want to be, and you're hanging on by your fingernails, then listen to the Holy Spirit Verse 7, give heed to the word of God. Chapter 2, verse 1, give heed to the word of God. Don't harden your heart. I read a testimony of one of you this week. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say who without her permission, but it was so sweet. Oh. Of several years of lukewarmness, I guess you'd say, mechanical, dutiful, Prayer, worship, Bible reading, and no vital, sweet fellowship with God. Nothing poured forth naturally from the mouth. And then, in a Bible study, under, over the Word of God, the Holy Spirit broke in. And my prayer for you is that the Word of God is not simply a thing to be fascinated by, intellectually, but that the power of God would come for you right now and awaken in you possibilities of enjoyment and authenticity and reality that you've never known before. That really is possible. You talk to some people around this church to whom it has happened in recent months and years, and you will be perhaps moved as well. And then one last word of exhortation. There are people in this room who have not made any start with God at all. And uh, I hold out a Jesus Christ this morning who's superior to you and everybody else because he's your creator. 
And he made purification for sins once for all. He was buried, raised, is risen at the right hand of God. He is overseeing the running of this world and his arms are wide and he welcomes into his fellowship all who don't work for him, don't work for him, but hope in him. The Lord takes pleasure not in the legs of a man or the strength of a horse. The Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in him. And so my beckoning to you this morning is not a list of things for you to do, but a hoping for you to do. Hope in God and not in yourself. Hope in mercy and not in yourself. And you will find yourself clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and assured that he will guard you to the end.